the 80s and 90s, Los Angeles gang culture was much more nuanced than anyone outside of it bothered to know. For some, gangs meant socializing, while the criminal activity of others colored all affiliated with the same broad brush. Gangs were viewed as a problem that needed a swift and harsh solution, and it seems that simply connecting a defendant to a gang was enough to get a conviction. While 15-year-old Eduardo Dombrique and 18-year-old John Clenny were affiliated with Londell 13 for the girls' parties and camaraderie, three older Londell 13 members, Santo Alvarez, Lester Monlor, and Chad Landrum, were in it for the drugs and violence. On June 28, 1997, Antonio Alarcon, a rival gang member, was killed in a drive-by shooting. A few days later, to escape unrelated charges, Santo Alvarez used his knowledge of that drive-by to blame Eduardo and John. A few weeks later, Alvarez, Monlor, and Landrum committed another murder, and the police were happy to pin Alvarez's role on a woman who knew the deceased, rather than their star witness against Eduardo and John. With Alvarez's statement and a corrupt identification process that was immediately recanted and protested by the witness, the two boys were taken to trial. Chad Landrum was willing to confess to the drive-by, but his continued violence behind bars kept him unavailable. Despite both Alvarez and the witness's less-than-willing participation at trial, the prosecutor and the detectives were able to harp on Eduardo and John's gang affiliation in order to send them away for life without parole. This is Wrongful Conviction. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today, we're covering a case that gives us a peek into the gang world of Los Angeles in the 1990s and the way in which the LAPD and the prosecutor's office dealt with that issue. We have two men that were affected by those policies when they were just boys. There's a third wrongfully convicted person, Susan Mellon, from a related crime. She's not recording with us today, but their amazing lawyer is. One of the founders of Innocence Matters, Deirdre O'Connor, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you for having me. And now, our guests of honor, the two men themselves. You know, I'm, I always say this, but it's true. I'm sorry that you guys are here because of why you're here, but I'm really happy to have you on Wrongful Conviction today. So I'm going to introduce John Clenny first. John, thank you for being here with us today on Wrongful Conviction. Thanks for having me. And of course, Ed Dumbrique, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So you two guys grew up together. Can you give us a little background there? I've known Ed since I was about maybe 15. Uh, we both grew up in Lawndale, California. Lawndale's kind of typical middle-class city in the South Bay. You know, it has its little areas that aren't so great, and it's, some areas are, are, are decent. So, It's about 10 minutes, 15 minutes from the beach. I think it's a, it's a nice city. It's got a good high school. So growing up in Lawndale, there was a gang in your neighborhood called the Lawndale 13. Well, we grew up there, and we were uh, part of that. So you two grew up in the gang culture of Los Angeles in the 80s and 90s and really came of age in the 90s. And I think it's news to some people that the word gang and gang culture in general is a bit more nuanced than most of the country realized back then. You know, many of our listeners are old enough to remember seeing news reports of the violence associated with gangs, and that's pretty much all anyone outside of that culture knew about it at the time. Only negative connotations, of course. So society reacted to that perception by electing quote-unquote, tough-on-crime politicians who implemented these kinds of ham-fisted policing tactics, which, of course, had very real effects, as you can both attest to, locking people up for the sake of doing it, but not the right people. And in too many cases, it's the wrong people like in yours. But gang culture was not just criminality and violence, right? It was much, much more nuanced than that. Would you say that's an accurate depiction? Yeah, for sure. Even in a single gang, it may be like you know, some people are just family. Some people are just friends. Of course, you have a criminal element to it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is involved in crime. The term gang is is not a good one, but it's like when you're young and growing up and, and, and you experience the friendship and the camaraderie. And I mean, that's kind of where you end up at, especially if you're growing up like in a neighborhood, you know, where gangs are there, you know. Not everybody is on the same page. Not everybody gets along. We were having fun. You know, whether it be trying to get girls, trying to have a good time, that's what it was. But then you definitely had other guys that their version of fun or, or, you know, what they would do is drugs and violence. What I think is true for all gangs, right, is that there are little subsets inside the gangs where people gravitate towards certain activities you know, chasing girls, maybe uh, scoring some weed, that kind of thing. And there was that kind of group. And then there, there were the people like Payaso, which is Santo Alvarez or Ghost, Chad Landrum or Wicked, uh, Lester Monlor, that were really wanting to make a name for themselves. They were getting high all the time and doing some real vicious stuff. And they were the ones out there doing the drive-bys and the kind of gratuitous violence that everybody associates gangs with. Did you get along with these guys? 
we know them. Uh, they're all significantly older than us. I knew Lester when I was growing up a little bit, like just as a as a younger kid. But he kind of went the druggy, kind of violent route. And I just was there for kind of like the camaraderie and the friendships and the fun. I saw Santos on my block a lot here and there. And my neighbor that lived in the back house, I guess he got his radio stolen, you know, out of his car in my driveway, you know. And I always pretty much suspected Santos as being the one that that stole it, you know. Okay, so so much for camaraderie. So this kind of accurately paints a picture of the divide that's at the crux of this story. And I mean by that, the larger perception of gangs in the 90s and then how the issue was dealt with, uh, like I said, in a ham-fisted kind of way by detectives like the ones in this case. There was Sergeant Riggs, but also Marcella Wynn in a related case. Deirdre, have either of them had any other wrongful convictions that they've been tied to? Wynne certainly does. She's a serial offender. There's at least five known people. O.B. Anthony and Reggie Cole case, they were co-defendants. Um, it was Wynne's first murder case at South Bay Homicide. Yeah, we covered that case here on Wrongful Conviction, and we'll have it linked in the bio. Then she had these two guys, Ed and John. Now, she had a tangential role in that, but had she done the right thing, these guys would not have been in custody. She also had the Susan Mellon case where she relied on a non-reliable person, but obviously unreliable. There was no question about it. And then she had another case, the uh, Michelle Poulos case. She relied on the same unreliable witness that she used against Susan Mellon. That is a really disgusting tactic that we see over and over again. Revisiting and reusing the same useful liars like Mark Tevins did in the Bronx and Upper Manhattan and this kid, Joey Morales, who was a witness in six different murders. And each time he was out getting milk for his mom. And Danny Rincon, who we interviewed on this podcast, Ron Commission, is still in prison three decades later because of this fake witness. And of course, Mark Tevins. It looks like Wynn was cut from the same cloth. She was a terrible detective and didn't follow the rules at all. Now, as far as Sergeant Riggs is concerned, you're going to see what he does in this case in terms of the identification process. And one can only surmise that if he was so comfortable running roughshod over a witness who was protesting at the identification in the courtroom and in post-conviction, yeah, while at the identification, he's literally going, I can't see that far. I can't do this identification for you because I can't see. So this guy tried to stand up and do the right thing, and was overruled and overridden and bullied by these cops. So it's fair to say that this is something that this particular officer had done before. The one thing I would say, Jason, in these in these gang cases, you know, all bets are off with these detectives. They can do whatever they want because they know that nobody has any sympathy. All they have to do is say the word gang member, and the prosecutors, the jurors, the judges, everybody rallies around a conviction. So the rules are completely different in a gang case, and that's why you see detectives violate the rules as much as they do because they can get away with it. Right. They violate the rules while lumping every gang member in under the umbrella of, quote, violent gang member, regardless of what subset of the gang that individual identified with. And what happened in this case, as happens, unfortunately, all over the country, tragically, is that you have a violent character like Santo Alvarez, who conveniently trades false information for his own freedom, 
And then he and they remain free, meaning other people like him, to commit more acts of violence while getting innocent folks wrongfully convicted. And according to the false information that Alvarez eventually gave the police, this story began to unfold on the day before the incident in question, June 27th, 1997, when a few kids from around the Lawndale 13 neighborhood, who were not in any way affiliated, were the victims of a drive-by. This was allegedly perpetrated by members of the Little Watts gang. Now, none of this was ever investigated or substantiated, but this story from Santo Alvarez was used as the alleged motive for a retaliatory drive-by the following night. But did either of you guys even know the kids who were shot or shot at the night before? In particular, did you know 19-year-old Luis Medrano? I didn't know the guy. Those guys were not associates of Londell. They were not friends of Londell that I know of. But somehow, I guess to maybe create a motive for our case, they got brought into that as being a good way to say, oh, yeah, these guys are retaliating for this. And what happened the following night, June 28, 1997, was that a member of the Lil Watts gang, 25-year-old Antonio Alarcon, was at an auto body shop. And while outside using the payphone next door, out of sight of those in the auto body shop, he was killed by a drive-by shooter. Deirdre, what else can you tell us? Alarcon had a truck that was being worked on over a period of time at the shop. And the shop owner, Daniel Curiel, was at the shop that night with a couple of other people in the shop. And Alarcon happened to stop by. And while he was there, I think he got a page and he wanted to use the phone to call uh, this woman who turned out to be his mistress. So he was offered to use the inside phone, but he declined and decided to go outside because he wanted privacy. So he went out of the shop. There's an adjacent building, and there's a payphone outside of that. And he went to the payphone to uh, speak with his mistress. And then suddenly a car pulled up. Somebody got out of the car and just unloaded multiple shots, and he was killed really probably before he had any chance to react in any way. And then the shooter got back in the car, and the car drove off. And as it drove off, it passed the opening of the body shop garage door. So basically, there's the storefront on the corner. Adjacent to it is the body shop, but the body shop sits in from the sidewalk so that there's parking in front of it. So when you're inside the body shop with the door open and looking out, you would not have a direct line to the phone booth because the wall of the building would be blocking it. But once the car moved forward, they would be able to see the car pass by. Right. So no one actually got a good look at the shooter, including the shop owner who told detectives that. But detectives cajoled him anyway into making an ID that he has never supported. Curiel even demonstrated later at trial that he can't reliably see 20 feet in front of him. Can you talk a bit about his vantage point? Curiel's working on a car with his back to the street. He hears the sound of the gunshots going off, but he thought it was fireworks. And because of the, the echoing effect, he thought it was coming from the back. So he goes to the back and he looks out to see what's going on back there. And that's when he realizes it's coming from the front. And by then the car is moving past the shop. So I, he, he would have been, I think, more than 20 feet away from the car at the time that he first observed it. So what he and others did see was that this was a black or dark green colored sedan and that the front passenger had yelled some kind of gang epithet at Alarcon as they drove off. 
So this shooting happened around 11 p.m. on June 28, 1997. And from looking into this case, I realized that this date has some other significance. And most of our audience will remember this like I do, because earlier that same night, Mike Tyson bit Evander Holyfield's ear off during a heavyweight championship fight. So people remember that night very, very clearly. In fact, you guys were friends. Ed was 15, John was 18, and you were hanging out to watch the fight together. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, the day of, he had a you know, barbecue and invited me. It, it was actually a great night. You know, we'd never seen something like that before, right? It was pretty memorable. There was multiple people there, you know, cooking, eating, drinking. It was It was a good night. Yeah, that was insane. I remember calling my friends and family just to check if they had seen it. Yeah, people called the house, a few people, and they're like, what the hell happened? Seeing it on the news and, you know, if they didn't watch the, the fight, you know? Right. They, they knew you were watching and called to ask about it. You were seen on the front lawn talking on your cordless phone by a neighbor as well who got home around 11. So not only the people at the party, but also those that called you and your neighbor They all placed you at home at the time of this shooting, which was about an 8 to 12 minute drive away from your home. And this shooting was alleged to be in retaliation for the shooting of some kid you didn't even know. Now, this case was being investigated by Sergeant Doral Riggs. Several days go by, and on July 1st, Santo Alvarez, a.k.a. Payaso, got picked up for possession of a weapon and a hypodermic needle by Torrance PD. And this is when the stories start. So basically, Santos Alvarez is in jail, trying to find his way out of jail, starts telling the, I believe it was the Torrance Police Department where he was at, you know, hey, I know something about a about a murder that happened. And they call the, the sheriff's homicide. Right. So Torrance PD called over to L.A. County Sheriff's Homicide Department and Sergeant Riggs came to interview Santo Alvarez. And they started asking about this dark colored car, maybe black, perhaps green. And while distancing himself from Lawndale gang activity, he said that the only person he can think of from Lawndale with a car like that was a guy named Robert Caputo. And he said that he saw the two of you in Caputo's car on the day of the murder, among other things. Biaso Santo Alvarez creates this story that he saw me the day of the murder and I was upset about that shooting from the prior day of Luis Madrano. And that I wanted to retaliate. And then he said that he saw me like, you know, a few days later or whatever. And and says that he overhears me talking to someone else saying that I shot someone or blasted that fool or something like along those lines is what he used. So with that, from my understanding, they let him out. (laughs) Then they go back to the witnesses. I feel they put pressure the most on probably Daniel Curiel since he was a shop owner and showed him six packs and coerced him into identifying us because of what Santos said. So you mentioned that Alvarez said that we were in Caputo's car, right? That Caputo had turned that car in or sold it. They could tell there that he was lying about that. And that's a significant thing to, to lie about. Like you, you said they were in a car that the guy doesn't have. Exactly. Caputo had sold it in February 1997, about five or six months before the shooting. Yet Riggs and his partner Garcia brought a six-pack photo array over to Curiel with the purpose of getting him to ID you two as if they couldn't spot that lie about Caputo's car right off the bat. 
this bogus photo lineup happened on July 10th, I believe, before Ed's arrest. And Curiel has always disputed this, but Riggs says that he identified Ed as the shooter and John as the front passenger who yelled a gang epithet. So what really happened here? Well, Riggs convinces him, basically, look, you're never going to have to go to court. We don't even need you. This is just to help our case a little bit. We already got these guys. But in reality, he was their entire case. So he convinces Curiel to say, all right, I'll sign for you. The day of my arrest, July 10th, 1997, on my way to the gym with a friend, and uh, he noticed that there was cop cars behind us, uh, and there was three of them. And then there was three coming in front of us. It, it had a bad feeling, like this is not a traffic ticket. They pulled us over, pulled the guns out, dragged us out the car. And one of my mom's friends happened to be driving by. And so she was across the street just observing. But I was trying to communicate with her to call my mom. Dude, I didn't want my mom not to know what happened to me either, you know. So I was 15, they tried me as an adult, and they sent me to the county jail. And I found myself in, in a very violent section of the L.A. County Jail. And uh, that was my kind of introduction to the system. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. 
Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Three weeks after the Alarcon shooting, Santo Alvarez, Lester Monlor, and Chad Landrum were hanging out in this house that had been vacated that was referred to as the Mellon Patch because the family that owned it, their last name was Mellon. So they break in the back. They're getting high. A homeless guy, Richard Daly, who had prior connection with the woman who used to live there, Susan Mellon, stops by. They're originally partying with him. And then all of a sudden, Chad Landrum viciously attacks Daly, smacks his head multiple times with a hammer, and kills him. And then with the help of Santo and Lester, they wrap up the body and bring it to an alley in San Pedro, where they set it on fire in hopes of destroying any evidence that will enable the police to connect them. Right. And you all didn't find out about this until post-conviction, even though the person who prosecuted both Ed and John prosecuted this case as well. And we talked a bit about her before, but the daily murder fell on Marcella Wynn's desk, right? And all of these informants came to her saying it was payaso, ghost, and wicked with the hammer right in the melon patch, open and shut, right? But that's not what happened. This person, Susan Mellon, ended up getting dragged into it in Payaso's stead, right? Instead of him. How did that happen? Well, I think initially when, you know, she takes the path of least resistance in all of her investigations. So when people were handing up the the three gang members, she was going to pursue that and go after them. She even submitted an affidavit for arrest warrants for all three of them. However, she doesn't want to do any heavy lifting. So there wasn't enough evidence for the DA to pursue Payaso, and Wynn didn't do the investigation she needed to build a case against him. So at the same time that it was becoming clear that she'd have to work to get Payaso further implicated in it, this other tweaker, June Patty, came along and said, hey, I I got some information on Mellon. You can pursue her. And so Wynn shifted gears and went after Mellon. And while she was doing this, she was in communication with Riggs about Payaso's role as a witness, as their star witness. In that case, so in those conversations that were never documented, the substance of that was never documented, clearly these detectives made decisions that benefited both of them. So Riggs was allowed to use Payaso in the Alarcon shooting, and Wynne was free to pursue Mellon, another innocent person, for the daily murder. So ultimately, Chad Landrum and Lester Monlor were rightfully pursued, along with Susan Mellon, who was wrongfully pursued. They were all tried separately, and Landrum and Mellon were both convicted. Monlor was acquitted. So both Monlor and Alvarez got off scot-free, ready, willing, and able to commit even more crimes. That's right. Yeah. 
Jesus Christ. So now August 14th rolls around, and John, you were arrested for the Alarcon drive-by as the front seat passenger. Yeah, that was a shocker, obviously. But for the first, you know, six months of, of going to jail when I got arrested, I thought the next court date they would realize, hey, this guy's not supposed to be here. We're going to go ahead and release him. And, you know, every court date turned into a next court date till I finally realized, like, these guys are serious. They really, you know, they're really trying to charge me with this. So now, October 30th, 1997, Curiel was brought into view a live lineup. And on the advice of your lawyer, John, you tried to change your appearance. So even though you were innocent of this crime, this move made you look mm, not so great. My lawyer, Frank DiGiacomo, he tells me, you know, hey, this guy, he's already seen pictures of you. They've shown him your six pack or whatever. Let's kind of make it a little more difficult for him to pick you out. So, you know, grow your hair out, shave your mustache. And I'm listening to the advice of my attorney. So I say, all right, you know, I grow my hair out, shave my mustache. I go to my lineup and then I'm, I'm waiting. They bring me off the stage from the lineup and the deputy is like, who are you? And I'm like, what do you mean? You're not John Clenny. Who are you? And I'm like, yes, I am. And he's like, no one recognizes you out there. Your, your lawyer doesn't recognize you. The detective doesn't recognize you. you. Did you switch wristbands? And I'm like, no, I didn't switch wristbands. <laughs> like, it's me, you know? And I said, how does my lawyer not recognize me? He just saw me two weeks ago. He's the one that told me to change my appearance. Little did I know that was, you know, going to be used against me. They use that as a sign of a consciousness of guilt. So later on, Curiel, in identifying you in the live lineup, he went on to testify that he had just recognized John from the photo arrays. And in referring to Riggs, quote, I already knew who he was looking for, end quote. Now, you two are on your way to be tried together, and Chad Landrum has already been convicted and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Amazingly, Landrum reached out to Ed's family because he wanted to come clean about the Alarcon drive-by. He wanted to testify in the case, and my lawyer did bring him down to our trial, or it was maybe a pre-trial motion or something, and they never got his, his statement. They didn't give him a chance to testify or confess. From what I've read, there's a reason why he didn't get that chance, right? He was actually brought down to the courthouse. What happened? Yeah, I guess he, he got into it or something with someone. I think it was on the bus or not too sure, but he ended up stabbing him in the courthouse tank. And that was the end of that. So you're one shot at getting around the false testimony of Alvarez and this protested identification just got dragged away for acting out violently again, stabbing another guy. And then you go to trial in L.A. County Superior Court, and no one brought up Landrum's involvement or went to get an affidavit. Nothing. So Ed was represented by Walter Urban and John by Frank DiGiacomo. The prosecutor was Valerie Cole. And so the prosecution's theory was that Ed, John, and a third Lawndale 13 gang member were in the dark green car. John was in the front passenger seat. Ed was in the back seat. And Ed was the shooter. So they never caught up with this alleged driver, right? John allegedly shouted an epithet about the Little Watts gang. This was allegedly in retaliation for this other shooting. But of course, this entire theory came from Santo Alvarez, who was deflecting the blame from his own crew. What was presented by the prosecution to support this wacky-ass theory? The prosecution was entirely dependent on pretrial statements of Santo Alvarez and the pretrial identification of Curiel. At the actual trial, Curiel 
did not identify either Ed or John. He specifically testified that the only reason he made the pretrial identification was because he was, you know, kind of pressured to. And he gave the whole story about how the police pointed out the pictures and said, hey, this guy's bragging about it. This guy was in the front seat. This guy's a shooter, all that. So the jurors weren't basing their verdict on what the testimony in front of them. They were basing their verdict on the statements made outside of their presence. Same thing with Payaso. When he gets into trial, he's like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know what I said. might have said whatever. So they use the tape recording of the statement that Payaso made to Riggs. And by the way, they rehearsed it before they did the official tape, right? They talked to him off record. And then they put the tape on and they talked to him. And so the jurors were told, hey, look at this is a gang case. Payaso doesn't want to come in here and rat out his homies so you can believe what he said to Riggs when he's trying to get out of custody. And Curiel, poor Curiel, he's being intimidated and threatened by all these gang members. So that's why he's not going to say it in front of you all. But he look what he said to the to the cops. You know, he made this idea. And that was the entirety of the prosecutor's case. And the other thing she did without any legitimate basis for doing so is she made every single one of the alibi witnesses look like liars and made it sound like the alibi was this last-minute defense that defense lawyers put together at the very end. When John's mother had presented the lawyers with line-by-line, minute-by-minute timeline of where everybody was, who showed up when, who left when, the names, the phone numbers, and all of that, the day she hired John's lawyer. So the alibi was known right from the get-go, but the jurors were misled into believing it was all some fabrication by the tricky defense lawyers. I mean, I can see how you could impeach alibi witnesses as friends and loved ones, or as they did in this case, fellow gang members and friends of Londell 13. So the message is that everyone is gang-related and therefore lying. But your lawyer could have backed up the alibi with phone records. It's not that complicated. It But even without that support, though, from what I understand, the one witness that was used in this corrupt identification process, Curiel, was adamant that he did not stand by this identification. Did he really take off his glasses to demonstrate how bad his vision was? Because that would have been pretty powerful. Does anyone remember that? Yeah, I remember that. He took off his glasses in court and couldn't see anything. I mean, you could tell he couldn't see anything. You know, when when someone, I can take off my glasses and... You can tell I need them <laughs> just by looking at me. So, I mean, it was amazing, man. It was it was crazy. Another thing that I remember happening, the district attorney, she said that I gave him a thumbs up. Yeah, I read about that to Curiel, like as if he was helping you out. And I'm curious now if she's ever used that tactic against other defendants because the whole courtroom focused on me and it's just did you just give the guy a thumbs up in open courtroom now mind he wasn't doing me any favors there was no reason and i did not give him a thumbs up i'm looking at the jury like i did not but it was effective yeah that was that was dirty it sounds like they were just running the disgraceful playbook I mean, part of Curiel's testimony was that the cops just convinced him that they had the right guys. And at that time, everyone believed the police, right? And then all they had to do was say gang and gang member enough times, and it's almost like Pavlov's dog. Just almost a knee-jerk reaction from the jury to say, okay, great, when do I get to vote guilty? The alibis and the witness protesting identification just didn't seem to matter at all. 
You got it 100%. And then they throw that thumbs up in there. If I could jump in on that point, in L.A., they created this hardcore gang unit in the late 80s. I believe it was 88 or 89. And the whole purpose of that hardcore gang unit was like, damn, it's hard to prove these cases because everybody's a liar and everybody has baggage and and we don't have good witnesses. We got to figure out a way. And basically what they did was they created this unit where they recruited all these overzealous prosecutors and say, hey, you get to be the shining star here and you can make these cases that nobody else can make. And then they gave them strategies for how to do that. how to What's the workaround when you really can't prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt? Just say gang, 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 gang as many times as you can. Make everything be about scaring the hell out of the jurors and making them think that whoever's sitting in the defendant's seat is the worst person in the world just because they happen to have affiliated with a gang for whatever reason. And regardless of their level of involvement, let's get them off the street. Evidence be damned. Even their use of the word homies. I mean, that's a racist dog whistle if I ever heard one. I saw the gang, gang, gang push by the prosecutor, by the, you know, by the detectives. You know, I saw my my lawyer not do a good job at all. The combination of all those things, I felt my life slipping away from me. When they read the verdict, I remember um, I heard, you know, my family, my mom wailing. I remember looking up at the lights in the courtroom, trying to not, you know, let no tears come out, man. I think I probably did shed a couple tears. You know, people talk about the worst moment in their life. That was for sure the worst moment right there. You know, I get to prison, I'm brand new. I uh, I don't know what to expect. I know that I'm surrounded by a bunch of guys that are um, violent, angry, confrontational. And so I'm navigating through that. You gotta walk on eggshells to be sure. And I used to work out a lot because if I did end up having to get into a confrontation, I wanted to be able to defend myself. And so I used to work out for three hours a day in the beginning. I, I tell people this story all the time, like my kind of welcome to prison moment. I'm scared, but I'm also trying not to show fear. You know, that's not a good idea in prison. I'm walking on the yard, some guys sitting down on a curb. And as I'm walking, I'm, I'm, you know, probably a foot or two away from him. And a guy comes up behind him and just slices his whole face open from like, his lip to his ear and just seeing that happen like you know a foot away from me it was like where the fuck am I so like Ed said it's just survival mode that's it as soon as I could I started to read books and uh, then I learned that you know the way the criminal appeal process works is your lawyer is going to dump the case on you and then it's going to be on you to represent yourself and that's when I started going to the library. I wouldn't go to the yard. I would go to the library instead because you could, you could only choose one or the other. And started to learn the law. And then I found myself in solitary. And I had to try to figure out a way, how am I going to get out of solitary? Was I started to study solitary confinement cases. Um, and I put together a memorandum of law 
on why lawyers should come to California and challenge long-term solitary confinement. And in those efforts, I, I managed to meet uh, Professor Jules Lobel from the University of Pittsburgh. It was through his student, Brett Grote, who's now the director of the Abolitionist Law Center. They read my memorandum, they researched it, and they decided to come to California, file a class action. And that case settled in uh, 2015, 2014. And, you know, I was partly responsible for getting guys that had been in there for 35 years, 28 years, 27 years. Um, me, myself, I was there for 13 years. It is one of the things that I've done in my life that I still feel the rewards of because today there's people that are outside and seeing the sky, seeing their family. And that is due to the work that I did. Obviously, I wasn't acting alone. I had, there was a team of lawyers, but I put in the work and, and it, it paid off. Well, you should be very proud of that. And as part of that settlement, California can no longer put a prisoner in solitary confinement for indeterminate periods. In Ed's case, it was 13 years with no end in sight, simply based upon alleged gang membership. So now that you've fought your way out of the prison within the prison, let's get to how you guys are here speaking with us today. So your initial appeals were denied. And as far as I can see here, there's no real movement on this until Landrum once again reached out to Ed's family saying that he wanted to confess to murdering Alarcon, right? We knew this already, but I guess he hadn't ever gone on the record about it and wasn't exactly easily reachable. He was also by this time in solitary doing life without parole. So John, take us through this. My friend told me when I got convicted, like, I'm going to get you a lawyer. I don't care how long it takes. You know, once I can afford one, I'm going to get you one. So when this stuff came up with Landrum, that's when I talked to my best friend and I told him, you know, now's the time, you know, this guy's coming forward and confessing, like, we need to get a lawyer. And thank God we got Deirdre. John's friend reached out to me in May of 2012. And what had happened prior to that was Chad Landrum had written out a confession and provided it to Ed's family. And then Ed used it to file his own habeas petition. But he didn't have any resources or a lawyer to help him. So it was just the paper that went in. And the judge just dismissed it without any thoughtful analysis at all. So when John's friend reached out to me, first thing we did is we scheduled a trip to Pelican Bay to meet with Chad Landrum. And Ed Dumbriki both of them were in the shoe unit and they had no ability to communicate with one another. My sense of it was if there was merit to Chad Landrum's confession, we needed to do a lot more work to build it up. And so we asked all kinds of details, including who else would have known back in the day about Chad's role in this killing and the details. He had not a single note in front of him reminding him about any of the details of the case, and he could give me specific information consistent with the police report, including the fact that he got out of the car and shot Alarcon. There were only two witnesses that saw that. They were women across the street, and they were never used in the trial, so none of that was in the trial record. All of the people from the auto body shop never saw anybody out of the car because the car doesn't come into their line of sight until after the shooting is done. He also knew that Alarcon was shot with different types of bullets. 
that was a fact that, although it was contained in the records, would not be something that some random person would have known about. So there was a lot of key points in Chad Landrum's statements to me that made me think that he probably was telling the truth. And so I asked him to tell me confirmation as to who else knew back then. And he told me his brother knew. And we followed up and talked to the brother and the brother gave us all kinds of information. And I also asked Chad if he would take a polygraph and he immediately agreed to, but the prison wouldn't allow us to go up there. And so then, you know, all of the places you would go logically in an investigation like this, including contacting Curiel, stop by his work out of the blue. He agrees to talk to us at an IHOP as soon as he gets off of work and he lays it all out. He tells us consistent with his recantation, everything, and it's all on tape. So nobody, nobody can say we put words in his mouth or anything. And then we did the same thing with all the alibi witnesses to find out you know, was there more that could have been done to show that they were telling the truth, including the logical things like phone records and other people who could corroborate what they said. And it all fell into place. And it was like, I remember talking to John, you know, we filed our brief in three months after investigation, and we felt like this is a no-brainer. He should be out that year. I think that's how we all hope our system works. But unfortunately, that's not how it usually goes, and this was no exception. So John's habeas was filed in October 2012. You presented all of this material, and like you said, it was a no-brainer. In 2013, Landrum made a formal confession on the record. Then Ed joined the habeas as well. So it seems like there's a lot of momentum, and in an effort to further support Landrum's confession, you reached out to his co-defendant on the Richard Daly murder, another wrongfully convicted person, Susan Mellon. Right. So we went and visited her. There were some delays along the way because she was being represented by someone else. But a, a year later, I ended up representing her. And in a lot of what I needed to prove her innocence overlapped with what I needed to prove for John and ultimately Ed, because there were so many witnesses in common. And representing Susan gave me access to witnesses that I didn't have before that. So this is 2014. Landrum and even Alvarez went on the record confessing to their roles in the daily murder and clearing Susan of any responsibility. And after 17 years in prison, 17 long years, Susan's conviction was vacated, charges were dismissed, and she went on to sue Marcella Wynn and won $12 million. Good for her. So we're obviously very happy for Susan. That seemed to be our system operating at the speed that it should. I mean, notwithstanding the 17 long years wrongfully incarcerated, but for John and Ed, there was a court order in November of 2012 for the DA to respond to this habeas petition. What happened, Deirdre? There was one delay after another. There was transfers of district attorneys and all kinds of stuff that just a month turned into six months, turned into a year, turned into five years. And uh, it's hard. I can't even imagine, excuse me, what it's like for these guys uh, to have to count on a lawyer on the outside saying, don't worry, I got you back. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to get it taken care of when they have been disappointed every step of the way. And, and I, you know, my experience of it is like, you know, the frustration I feel on my end can't even begin to compare to what these guys are going through. 
Right. Imagine having the keys to the prison gate staring you in the face for eight years before the district attorney or the courts even pretend to not ignore them. It wasn't until 2020 that a judge finally made a ruling that amounts to basically a brain fart of a man in cognitive decline. So tell us about this judge, Edmund Clark Jr., and how this thing finally turned around. So it was clear we weren't going to be able to force anybody's hand until we filed this this supplemental brief. And I mean, this, this brief, because of all of the evidence that was developed during Susan Mellon's case, was even stronger than what we had. And we had a, a clear winner from, uh, from the beginning. But it lands in the hands of a judge who couldn't care less and in a heartbeat without any hearing or anything. He denies it. He characterizes it as a pro se, pro per petition. When I have my name all over it, it's clear I'm, I'm representing him. And I had already been on the record and he completely distorted the history of it and made it sound like it was a brand new petition that was relitigating issues that had already been decided against John. So he dismissed it, and then he retired soon after that. So I filed two motions, one for reconsideration and one for a ruling on the original petition. And either way, we were prepared to go to the Court of Appeal. That's where we thought we were going to end up. But fortunately, the judge who took the other judge's place really was concerned that this might be a case involving innocent people. And she told the DA, you're going to need to commit, get yourself on paper, tell me what your position is on this case, because if these are innocent people, we have to deal with it. And once they were forced to deal with it, then they submitted. Then they just read the document and answered the document back in 2012. It would have been the same answer. They submitted. They said that based on the cumulative error in the case, that the conviction should be vacated and they were not going to pursue the charges. They were going to recommend that it be dismissed. They could have done that back in 2013. I'm rarely at a loss for words, but this just really makes my stomach turn. I mean, it's just so, it makes me so angry, frustrated, and just, I feel a sense of deep sadness. And this didn't even happen to me. But I just hate injustice. And this is such a grotesque example of the system at its worst. Um, we see it a lot on this show, but this one, this one's really leaving a bitter taste. But the silver lining, of course, is that you're out even if it took so much longer than it should have. And never mind that it should have never even happened in the first place. And John, I understand that despite it all, you have somehow managed to maintain a positive outlook. Every day is a blessing for sure, you know. And as each day goes by, it seems so much farther away from everything that happened, but it just feels great to be out and great to be free. And uh, words can't express it or describe it really. Yeah, you know, getting arrested at 15 and sent off to prison, I um, there's a lot of things in normal society that I've never experienced. Um, you know, just this last year was the first time I took a plane ride, first time I've been to a lake, to a river, but also like the first time I had to pay bills, um, the first time I had to keep up with the appointments, responsibilities, balancing school and work. What I'm finding is that it doesn't just fall into place. It It doesn't. And I'm working through that, but um, there are times when I feel a little bit lost out here. I really do. I really do. But um, I'm confident and optimistic that uh, it's going to come together. 
And Ed, I understand that you'd like to start a nonprofit. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? I applied for a job in Pittsburgh at a nonprofit, the Abolitionist Law Center. I'm hopeful that I get the job. If I do, I'm, I'm headed out that way in order for me to work there, but also to learn about nonprofits and how it runs and um, with the goal of creating my own. I want to call it Juvenile Justice for All. And the goal would be to have children treated equally and fairly, to have their, their parents' rights respected. But a lot of times they just adopt adult laws. The adult prison system doesn't help uh, children at all. I look to filing cases in court, but also working on policy changes, speaking to other nonprofits and getting them to support some of these ideas. Uh, my goal is to have a uniform system in America, treating children equally and fairly across the board. Well, Ed, you've already been able to accomplish so much from behind bars. So we're going to be on the lookout for Juvenile Justice for All. And we'll also link to Innocence Matters, the organization that Deirdre co-founded. So please show them your support and John's Instagram as well, where he'll keep you up to date on the continued fight for justice in this case. The courts are still trying to deny the factual innocence claim here. But after what we've heard here today, I can't see any reason for it. And with that, we're going to go to closing arguments where, first of all, I thank each of you from the bottom of my heart for joining us here. And then I'm going to kick back in my chair, shut my microphone off and leave my headphones on and just listen to anything else you feel is left to be said. Deirdre. Please start us off, and then we'll leave it to the guys to take us off into the sunset. I think that it's essential for these stories to be told, and I'm so grateful that you guys give people like John and Ed the opportunity to tell the stories that they lived through. I think it's important for the public to understand how fallible the system is, and I wish it was limited to the 90s. But I represent people who are charged today. It's the same fight, the same struggle. And we've got to get it right the first time. We have to want to get it right the first time because it, it doesn't serve anybody. Even if all we care about collectively as a society is the money aspect of this, we're throwing money away. We're paying for people to be housed in prisons for crimes they didn't commit. And the real criminals are out there committing other crimes. So we need to get it right. We need to want to get it right. And we need to applaud people like John and Ed who have gone through hell and back and we need to make their lives easier once they get out we need to we need to help them in whatever way we can well i um i do appreciate this opportunity to speak about our case and what we went through i know that there's a lot of other people out there that are in the same circumstances and they're in the same struggle um so i do um appreciate the work that you're doing and I just, I'm, I'm happy to be free, you know, I'm happy to be free. I'm looking forward to making a difference out here. I, th I think it kind of, for me, would give my life meaning when I feel like I've lost so much of it already. Um, I'm hopeful that what's left of it, I can actually make a difference. And my experience will help other people. Um, a couple of things. I'd just like to thank you, Jason, for what you do and Wrongful Conviction Podcast, Lava for Good. I follow all that stuff very closely. Keep it up because it's needed. I think it helps a lot. And even if it helps a little, a little is more than nothing. So for me, the one thing I would tell people is never to lose hope, never to give up. That's the key to everything. Because I know in my case, I never gave up hope. 
I kept the fight. Never got away from that. If you're innocent, you better fight until you can't fight anymore. Hope is all you got. That's all that's going to keep you going. Don't lose it. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.